Section 6 of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Section 6. Early one morning in November, we said good-bye to our friendly host, and, directed by a picturesque old guide who said he knew the road to Paranacochas, we left Cotahuasi. The highway crossed the neighboring stream on a treacherous-looking bridge, the central pier of which was built of the crudest kind of masonry piled on top of a gigantic boulder in midstream. The main arch of the bridge consisted of two long logs across which had been thrown a quantity of brush held down by earth and stones. There was no rail on either side, but our mules had crossed bridges of this type before and made little trouble. On the northern side of the valley we rode through a compact little town called Munji and began to climb out of the canyon, passing hundreds of very fine artificial terraces at present used for crops of maize and barley. In one place our road led us by a little waterfall, an altogether surprising and unexpected phenomenon in this arid region. Investigation, however, proved that it was artificial, as well as the fields. Its presence may be due to a temporary connection between the upper and lower levels of ancient irrigation canals. Hour after hour, our pack train painfully climbed the narrow, rocky zigzag trail. The climate is favorable for agriculture. Wherever the sides of the canyon were not absolutely precipitous, stone-faced terraces and irrigation had transformed them long ago into arable fields. Four thousand feet above the valley floor, we came to a very fine series of beautiful terraces. On a shelf near the top of the canyon, we pitched our tent near some rough stone corrals used by shepherds, whose flocks grazed on the lofty plateau beyond, and near a tiny brook, which was partly frozen over the next morning. Our camp was at an elevation of 14,500 feet above the sea. Nearby were turreted rocks, curious results of wind and sand erosion. The next day, we entered a region of mountain pastures. We passed occasional swamps and little pools of snow water. From one of these we turned and looked back across the great Cotahuasi Canyon to the glaciers of Solimana and snow-clad Coropuna, now growing fainter and fainter as we went toward Paranacochas. At an altitude of 16,500 feet we struck across a great barren plateau covered with rocks and sand, hardly a living thing in sight. In the midst of it, we came to a beautiful lake, but it was not Paranacochas. On the plateau, it was intensely cold. Occasionally, I dismounted and jogged along beside my mule in order to keep warm. Again, I noticed that as the result of my experiences on Coropuna, I suffered no discomfort nor any symptoms of mountain sickness, even after trotting steadily for four or five hundred yards. In the afternoon, we began to descend from the plateau toward Lampa, and found ourselves in the pasture lands of Ahochiucha, where Ichu grass and other little foliage plants, watered by rain and snow, furnish forage for large flocks of sheep, yamas, and alpacas. Their owners live in the cultivated valleys, 
but the Indian herdsmen must face the storms and piercing winds of the high pastures. Alpacas are usually timid. On this occasion, however, possibly because they were thirsty and were seeking water holes in the upper courses of a little swale, they stopped and allowed me to observe them closely. The fleece of the alpaca is one of the softest in the world. However, due to the fact that shrewd tradesmen, finding that the fabric manufactured from alpaca wool was highly desired, many years ago gave the name to a far cheaper fabric. The alpaca of commerce, a material used for coat linings, umbrellas, and thin, warm-weather coats, is a fabric of cotton and wool, with a hard surface and generally dyed black. It usually contains no real alpaca wool at all, and is fairly cheap. The real alpaca wool, which comes into the market today, is not so called. Long and silky, straighter than the sheep's wool, it is strong, small of fiber, very soft, pliable, and elastic. It is capable of being woven into fabrics of great beauty and comfort. Many of the silky, fluffy, knitted garments that command the highest prices for winter wear, and which are called by various names, such as vicuña, camel's hair, etc., are really made of alpaca. The alpaca, like its cousin the llama, was probably domesticated by the early Peruvians from the wild guanaco, largest of the camels of the New World. The guanaco still exists in a wild state and is always of uniform coloration. Llamas and alpacas are extremely variegated. The llama has so coarse a hair that it is seldom woven into cloth for wearing apparel, although heavy blankets made from it are in use by the natives. Bred to be a beast of burden, the llama is accustomed to the presence of strangers and is not any more timid of them than our horses and cows. The alpaca, however, requiring better and scarcer forage, short tender grass and plenty of water, frequents the most remote and lofty of the mountain pastures, is handled only when the fleece is removed, seldom sees anyone except the peaceful shepherds, and is extremely shy of strangers, although not nearly as timid as its distant cousin the vicuña. I shall never forget the first time I ever saw some alpacas. They looked for all the world like the woolly dogs of our toy shops, woolly along the neck right up to the eyes, and woolly along the legs right down to the invisible wheels. There was something inexpressibly comic about these long-legged animals. They look like toys on wheels, but actually they can gallop like cows. The yama, with far less hair on head, neck, and legs, is also amusing, but in a different way. His expression is haughty and supercilious in the extreme. He usually looks as though his presence near one is due to circumstances over which he really had no control. Pride of race and excessive haughtiness lead him to carry his head so high and his neck so stiffly erect that he can be corralled, with others of his kind, by a single rope passed around the necks of the entire group. Yet he can be bought for ten dollars. On the pasture lands of Ahochiucha there were many ewes and lambs, both of llamas and alpacas. Even the shepherds were mostly children, more timid than their charges. They crouched inconspicuously behind rocks and shrubs, endeavoring to escape our notice. About five o'clock in the afternoon, on a dry pampa, we found the ruins of one of the largest known Inca storehouses, Chichipampa. 
an interesting reminder of the days when benevolent despots ruled the Andes, and, like the pharaohs of old, provided against possible famine. The locality is not occupied, yet nearby are populous valleys. As soon as we left our camp the next morning, we came abruptly to the edge of the Lampa Valley. This was another of the mile-deep canyons so characteristic of this region. Our pack-mules grunted and groaned as they picked their way down the corkscrew trail. It overhangs the mud-colored Indian town of Colta, a rather scattered collection of a hundred or more huts. Here again, as in the Cotahuasi Valley, are hundreds of ancient terraces, extending for thousands of feet up the sides of the canyon. Many of them were badly out of repair. But those near Colta were still being used for raising crops of corn, potatoes, and barley. The uncultivated spots were covered with cacti, thorn brushes, and the gnarled, stunted trees of a semi-arid region. In the town itself were half a dozen specimens of the Australian eucalyptus, that agreeable and extraordinarily successful colonist which one encounters not only in the heart of Peru, but in the Andes of Colombia and the new forest preserves of California and the Hawaiian Islands. Colta has a few two-storied houses with tiled roofs. Some of them have open verandas on the second floor a sure indication that the climate is at times comfortable their walls are built of sun-dried adobe and so are the walls of the little grass-thatched huts of the majority judging by the rather irregular plan of the streets and the great number of terraces in and around town one may conclude that colta goes far back of the sixteenth century and the days of the spanish conquest as indeed do most peruvian towns the cities of Lima and Arequipa are noteworthy exceptions. Leaving Colta, we wound around the base of the projecting ridge, on the sides of which were many evidences of ancient culture, and came into the valley of Huanca Huanca, a large arid canyon. The guide said that we were nearing Paranacochas. Not many miles away, across two canyons, was a snow-capped peak, Sarasara. Lampa, the chief town in the Huancahuanca Canyon lies on a great natural terrace of gravel and alluvium, more than a thousand feet above the river. Part of the terrace seemed to be irrigated and under cultivation. It was proposed by the energetic farmers at the time of our visit to enlarge the system of irrigation so as to enable them to cultivate a larger part of the pampa on which they lived. In fact, the new irrigation scheme was actually in process of being carried out and has probably long since been completed. Our reception in Lampa was not cordial. It will be remembered that our military escort, Corporal Gamara, had gone back to Arequipa with Dr. Bowman. Our two excellent arrieros, the Tejada brothers, declared they preferred to travel without any brass buttons. So we had not asked the sub-prefect of Cotahuasi to send one of his small handful of gendarmes along with us. Probably this was a mistake. Unless one is traveling in Peru on some easily understood matter, such as prospecting for mines, or representing one of the great importing and commission houses, or actually peddling goods, one cannot help arousing the natural suspicions of a people to whom traveling on muleback for pleasure is unthinkable, and scientific exploration for its own sake is incomprehensible. 
Of course, if the explorers arrive accompanied by a gendarme, it is perfectly evident that the enterprise has the approval and probably the financial backing of the government. It is surmised that the explorers are well paid, and what would be otherwise inconceivable becomes merely one of the ordinary experiences of life. South American governments, almost without exception, are paternalistic, and their citizens are led to expect that all measures connected with research, whether it be scientific, economic, or social, are to be conducted by the government and paid for out of the national treasury. Individual enterprise is not encouraged. During all my preceding exploration in Peru, I had had such an easy time that I not only forgot, but failed to realize how often an ever-present gendarme provided through the courtesy of President Leguia's government had quieted suspicions and assured us a cordial welcome. Now, however, when, without a gendarme, we entered the smart little town of Lampa, we found ourselves immediately and unquestionably the objects of extreme suspicion and distrust. Yet we could not help admiring the well-swept streets, freshly whitewashed houses, and general air of prosperity and enterprise. The gobernador of the town lived in the main street in a red-tiled house, whose courtyard and colonnade were probably two hundred years old. He had heard nothing of our undertaking from the government. His friends urged him to take some hostile action. Fortunately, our arrieros, respectable men of high grade, although strangers in Lampa, were able to allay his suspicions temporarily. We were not placed under arrest, although I am sure his action was not approved by the very suspicious town councillors, who found it far easier to suggest reasons for our being fugitives from justice than to understand the real object of our journey. The very fact that we were bound for Lake Paranacochas, a place well known in Lampa, added to their suspicion. It seemed that Lampa is famous for its weavers, who utilize the wool of the countless herds of sheep, alpacas, and vicuñas in this vicinity to make ponchos and blankets of high grade, much desired not only in this locality, but even in Araquipa. These are marketed, as so often happens in the outlying parts of the world, at a great annual fair, attended by traders who come hundreds of miles, bringing the manufactured articles of the outer world and seeking the highly desired products of these secluded towns. The great fair for this vicinity has been held, for untold generations, on the shores of Lake Paradacochas. Everyone is anxious to attend the fair, which is an occasion for seeing one's friends, an opportunity for jollification, carousing, and general enjoyment, like a large county fair at home. Except for this annual fair week, the basin of Paranacochas is as bleak and desolate as our own fairgrounds, with scarcely a house to be seen except those that are used for the purpose of the fair. Had we been bound for Paranacochas at the proper season, nothing could have been more reasonable and praiseworthy. Why anybody should want to go to Paranacochas during one of the other fifty-one weeks in the year was utterly beyond the comprehension or understanding of these village worthies. So, to our select men, are the idiosyncrasies of itinerant gypsies who wish to camp in our deserted fairgrounds. The Tejadas were not anxious to spend the night in town, probably because, 
according to our contract, the cost of feeding the mules devolved entirely upon them, and fodder is always far more expensive in town than in the country. It was just as well for us that this was so, for I am sure that before morning the village gossips would have persuaded the gobernador to arrest us. As it was, however, he was pleasant and hospitable, and considerably amused at the embarrassment of an Indian woman who was weaving at a handloom in his courtyard and whom we desired to photograph. She could not easily escape, for she was sitting on the ground with one end of the loom fastened around her waist, the other end tied to a eucalyptus tree. So she covered her eyes and mouth with her hands, and almost wept with mortification at our strange procedure. Peruvian Indian women are invariably extremely shy, rarely like to be photographed, and are anxious only to escape observation and notice. The ladies of the gobernador's own family, however, of mixed Spanish and Indian ancestry, not only had no objection to being photographed, but were moved to unseemly and unsympathetic laughter at the predicament of their unfortunate sister. After leaving Lampa, we found ourselves on the best road that we had seen in a long time. Its excellence was undoubtedly due to the enterprise and energy of the people of this pleasant town. One might expect that citizens who kept their town so clean and neat, and were engaged in the unusual act of constructing new irrigation works, would have a comfortable road in the direction toward which they usually would wish to go, namely, toward the coast. As we climbed out of the Wonka Wonka Valley, we noticed no evidences of ancient agricultural terraces, either on the sides of the valley or on the alluvial plain which has given rise to the town of Lampa and whose products have made its people well-fed and energetic. The town itself seems to be of modern origin. One wonders why there are so few, if any, evidences of the ancient regime when there are so many a short distance away in Colta and the valley around it. One cannot believe that the Incas would have overlooked such a fine agricultural opportunity as an extensive alluvial terrace in a region where there is so little arable land. Possibly the very excellence of the land and its relative flatness rendered artificial terracing unnecessary in the minds of the ancient people who lived here. On the other hand, it may have been occupied until late Inca times by one of the coast tribes. Whatever the cause, certainly the deep canyon of Huanca Huanca divides two very different regions. To come in a few hours from thickly terraced Colta to unterraced Lampa was so striking as to give us cause for thought and speculation. It is well known that in the early days before the Inca conquest of Peru, not so very long before the Spanish conquest, there were marked differences between the tribes who inhabited the high plateau and those who lived along the shore of the Pacific. Their pottery is as different as possible in design and ornamentation. The architecture of their cities and temples is absolutely distinct. Relative abundance of flat lands never led them to develop terracing to the same extent that the mountain people had done. Perhaps on this alluvial terrace there lived a remnant of the coastal peoples. Excavation would show. Scarcely had we climbed out of the valley of Huancahuanca and surmounted the ridge when we came in sight of more artificial terraces. Beyond a broad, deep valley rose the extinct volcanic cone of Mount Sarasara, 
now relatively close at hand, its lower slopes separated from us by another canyon. Snow lay in the gulches and ravines near the top of the mountain. Our road ran near the towns of Pararca and Cochabamba, the latter much like Colta, a straggling village of thatched huts surrounded by hundreds of terraces. The vegetation on the valley slopes indicated occasional rains. Near Pararca we passed fields of barley and wheat growing on old stone-faced terraces. On every hand were signs of a fairly large population engaged in agriculture, utilizing fields which had been carefully prepared for them by their ancestors. They were not using all, however. We noticed hundreds of terraces that did not appear to have been under cultivation recently. They may have been lying fallow temporarily. Our arrieros avoided the little towns, and selected a campsite on the roadside near the Finca Rodadero. After all, when one has a comfortable tent, good food, and skillful arrieros, it is far pleasanter to spend the night in the clean, open country, even at an elevation of 12,000 or 13,000 feet, than to be surrounded by the smells and noises of an Indian town. The next morning, we went through some wheat fields, past the town of Payusca, another large Indian village of thatched adobe houses placed high on the shoulder of a rocky hill so as to leave the best arable land available for agriculture. It is in a shallow, well-watered valley, full of springs. The appearance of the country had changed entirely since we left Cotahuasi. The desert and its steep-walled canyons seemed to be far behind us. Here was a region of gently sloping hills, covered with terraces, where the cereals of the temperate zone appeared to be easily grown. Finally, leaving the grain fields, we climbed up to a shallow depression in the low range at the head of the valley, and found ourselves on the rim of a great upland basin more than twenty miles across. In the center of the basin was a large oval lake. Its borders were pink. The water in most of the lake was dark blue, but near the shore the water was pink, a light salmon pink. What could give it such a curious color? Nothing but flamingos, countless thousands of flamingos. Perinacochas, at last. End of Section 6 Recording by William Tomko